0: Hello, this is Attila Gabriel from Bluish Green Productions, and welcome to Bits of Wisdom, a gameology supplemental episode. I'll be taking an existing topic we've covered, or one which doesn't fit the regular conversation format that I usually record along with Matthew, and be recording a couple shorter solo episodes. I'd like to start off with the topic that started it all, environmental reuse. For a number of reasons, be it conscious decision or simple lack of budget, you'll see environments reused in games quite often, much to the average gamer's dismay. I feel the the reason that we dislike retreading ground in games stems from our experience retreading ground in our day-to-day lives. I think most people have some sort of routine where they take familiar path to and from work every day, and when we play games we want to a contrast from this monotony. We want an endlessly new and interesting world and it's all too easy to call the developers lazy for not creating new environments for each new experience. Instead though, our focus should be on unique play experiences. If a game is making you retread the same ground and perform the exact same task while nothing new about the experience has changed, then yeah, okay, you can call the developers out on it. I'd like to take a look at two different games which I find do this very well, and one which does it very poorly. First of all, let's talk about Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. There are segments of this game where you play as a wolf, and your control scheme is completely different. That means that your means of traversal are different. You have a different objective than simply getting from point A to point B, as you do when you're a human. You are tasked with hunting down a number of insects, which hold the keys to forward progress in the form of tiers of light. True backtracking, that being when you have to turn around and go back the way you came, is possible to allow players to fully explore an area if they fear they've missed a tier, but it isn't mandatory. Upon finding the last one, you are granted instant passage back to the point where the tears are redeemed. I think this is a great design choice because even if the designers have taken care to make the return path an interesting one, it's psychologically draining to have to go all the way back. I think the devs might be tempted to make the player leg it back to the start out of some distorted sense that this will help inflate the playtime and make people think that they're getting more value out of the game, but this is not the case. First of all, it's painfully obvious when a game is forcing you to backtrack and everyone feels it immediately. Second, going backwards isn't really adding any value to the game. If it was well designed, backtracking should always be possible, in the emergency sense that I discussed earlier, where a player might have missed a tier, and therefore shouldn't be held up as something exceptional. It's aimless traversal at best, and a nightmarish grind at worst, like swimming upstream against a level which was designed to be played optimally in a single direction. In the case of Twilight Princess, there are clearly some parts of the game that were world and some that are level, and this is an important distinction. Levels I classify as dungeons, temples, or any other part of the game where you can go through in a linear fashion. Retreading levels is the least fun because it can be difficult to create a vastly different experience within a space that was so tightly designed. On the other hand, Worlds sections include things like Hyrule Field and the towns of the game, locales which are not hives of combat or puzzle solving, but are an open space that knit the levels together. Free roaming is the name of the game in places such as these. Until the day when we can spawn complete experiences from our brains, environments will be reused in games. Twilight Princess handles environment reuse very elegantly because it seeks to provide the player with a unique and new experience, even within familiar environments. Now let's contrast that against one of my other absolute favourite games, Paper Mario The Thousand Year Door. With Twilight Princess being an example of environmental reuse done right, I want to turn a critical eye on Paper Mario The Thousand Year Door. I've played this game about 6 times through, with an average of 22 hours per file. If anyone has played this game anywhere near as much as I have, there will be a few segments that probably stick out in your mind for having an inordinate amount of backtracking. That being said, Paper Mario has a near flawless difficulty curve. When you enter a new area, you're always just around the right level to fight enemies in that zone. Cutting out all the backtracking and subsequent enemies that you fight while backtracking would mean you no longer have the experience necessary to be at the correct level. It'd be like playing Pokemon and dodging all the encounters with random trainers. Sure, it's saving you time, but in the end, you need that experience, and it's only worth fighting those trainers the first time you see them, otherwise you're overleveled and the experience that you would earn is trivial. So Paper Mario is constructed around the backtracking, but these are still parts of the game which I would gladly skip if given the choice because they aren't adding to the experience. There's nothing new or exciting about the fourth time you have to backtrack between Twilight Town and Ghostly Manor. In fact, this part of the game is pretty strong implication that you should be fleeing every battle and it just feels awful as a player, you can lose a lot of your saved up coins. On a back of the envelope calculation, I estimated that you could crop about 7 hours worth of backtracking out of the game, and it would have left it as a much tighter experience. Make sure you don't cave into people who are clamouring for dollar per hour game experiences. It's far better to keep an eye on your awesome per second ratio. Now if infinite novelty is really what you're after, perhaps you'd be more interested in a procedurally generated game. Advances in both hardware and software have improved the nature and quality of experiences generated by procedural generation. As the prospect of using this tool becomes more accessible, it's important to consider its use cases. When talking about procedural generation, it'll be useful to break it up into two distinct categories, procedural generated experiences and procedurally generated environments. A procedurally generated experience is one that takes place within a fixed environment, such as an endless mode in a game where enemies keep spawning according to a fixed set of rules, while a procedurally generated environment is the physical space that an experience takes place in, so a randomly generated dungeon. A procedurally generated experience can take place in either a handcrafted environment or one that was procedurally generated, whereas a procedurally generated environment can only play host to a procedurally generated experience as the level will never have been seen by a designer. Procedural generation may seem like a great tool for small teams to quickly build out the physical terrain of larger game worlds, but there is a significant time cost associated with creating the system in the first place. To break down this time cost, let's go over the basics of how a procedural generated system is built. At its heart, a procedural generated system is a constrained means of creating random outputs. Those outputs can be, but aren't necessarily limited to, the experiences or environments you are seeking to create. The constraints are made up of the very same rules that you would use as a designer when creating your game. Certain enemies must be placed on the ground, power-ups should not be placed on spots where you can't reach, etc. Certain rules will no doubt be easier to recreate and code than others. The more elements there are in your game, the more the constraints grow exponentially. Consider this example from a platforming game like Super Mario World. While it might be easy to create a system that does a position check to ensure that Goombas are always placed to the ground, it might be more difficult to ensure that those Goombas are not placed in such a space where it will be impossible for Mario to jump up through a one way floor. Of course, you could always create a simplified set of rules for such a game by only generating terrain which can be traversed through a series of easy to perform jumps, making safe guesses, as this will guarantee that you'll end up with something playable. Of course, playable can be a long way from fun, and ultimately, you have to decide if the scope of the project you're working on merits the time investment necessary to create a procedural generation system, or if that time would be better spent handcrafting the levels. Whether or not you use procedural generation to create your game environments, it can be an excellent tool for decorating them. For instance, if you're creating a large open world with the emphasis on filling a large area of decoration, you can use procedural generation to fill a space with a set of randomized elements. For example, it would be incredibly tedious to decorate all the roads of a city with lane markings, cracks in the pavement, weather damage, etc., but you could easily feed these details into a procedural generation system and have it do a large amount of the work for you as long as you take the time to look over what the computer came up with and verify it didn't do something outlandish. On the experiential side of things, procedural generation is excellent at creating certain types of puzzles, specifically ones with simple rule sets like that of a Rubik's Cube. The possible movements the cube can make can be encoded and then applied as a shuffling algorithm to scramble the puzzle. The same sort of logic can be applied to creating a Sudoku. A complete board can be generated, which adheres to the rules of a Sudoku, then numbers can be deleted at random to create the puzzle itself. That being said, any puzzle which can be created by an algorithm can be solved by an algorithm, and relying too heavily on procedurally generated puzzles can get boring or frustrating because the computer can actually spit the puzzles out faster than it takes a player to solve them. At that point, the challenge being presented is as arbitrary as playing 52 Pickup. That being said, lots of people still enjoy playing Sudoku puzzles and solving scrambled Rubik's Cubes, and I don't mean this as a slight against that sort of entertainment. As I see it, the power and flexibility afforded by modern game devices, I personally believe that we can create puzzles that are more varied, interactive, and satisfying to solve. As with all tools available to a game designer, if you decide to use procedural generation in the creation of your game, or as part of the game experience, You must consider all the implications of the randomly generated experiences that the system can produce. Investing a lot of time into a well-built procedural generation system can create a near limitless number of possible experiences, but volume does not substitute for the quality of an experience. It is highly important to start with fundamentally strong gameplay experience, and only then should you consider which elements of the game can be procedurally generated and which ones should be done by hand. So there you go. That's roughly an hour's worth of podcasting condensed into a round 12 minutes audio episode. Uh, I hope that you find this uh, supplemental episode interesting, and if you do, uh, you can look forward to seeing more of it in the future. As always, you can submit user feedback via my website, which is bluishgreenproductions.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Attila Gabriel or Bluish Green Pro. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. a procedurally (laughs) (laughs) generated,